what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns a whole estate. The heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. When I was 18, I got a job making pizzas. When I applied, I thought it would be a great a great time. I learned to toss pizzas, become this real Italiano, pizza artisan, chef kind of person. That would be cool. But I soon discovered that working in a franchise pizzeria was nothing like that. Each pizza was made out of a big wad of dough. You press through a machine that was like a mop ringer and would flatten it out. You take a big cookie cutter, set it down, and you'd cut your circle out, throw it on a plate, and put it down what I called the ingredients gauntlet. It was a narrow table with shelves on it and ingredients and the scales, and you had to carefully and precisely put on how many pieces of pepperoni or the weight of so many olives and distribute it on there. It was not artistic at all. Um, Some of the ingredients were better than others. Pepperoni was okay. Anchovies? Hmm. All right. You like oatmeal too, huh? Thought so. The worst, though, was linguisa. Linguisa is a fatty sausage, and it is an icky, gooey mess. And we had to weigh it, and you'd put it on the scale, and you have to get it off and scrape it off with your fingers and try to get it off your fingers onto the pizza. And I can only describe it as like rubbing your fingers like you've got a wet gorilla booger on your fingers. <laughs> And trying to get it off and get it there on the pizza. And what made it worse was the whole thing was like playing a bad game of beat the clock. Because our supervisors wanted us to just get the pizzas into the oven, get them into the oven. And so we did. Mentally, I felt like I wasn't in a kitchen. I was in a galley. But not a kitchen galley. But as in a galley slave rowing in the bowels of a ship. Some big sweaty guy banging a drum going, gong, gong. Sometimes, though, I got to crawl out of the kitchen to be at the front counter. And I got to greet people, and I got to take orders and hand people their pizzas when they came out of the oven. And that was kind of nice. And then one day, she came in. It was a friend of mine I knew from grade school. I hadn't seen her since the fifth grade. But I knew who she was, even though she had changed. And boy, did she change. Um... She had come in from a beauty pageant she had just won. She was all dolled up in a beautiful green dress, her hair done, her her makeup on and everything. She looked lovely. 
um, breathtaking. I was taken aback. I was, you might say, smitten. Now, I'm this kid man, barely out of high school, and I was nervous, and somehow I felt my abilities to function socially just disappear. All I could think of was, wow, when did this happen? And why is my brain not giving me any words to say? I presented her with a robotic hello, and I took her order. She went and seated herself while her pizza was getting ready, and I readied myself mentally. I was much calmer when she came back the second time. I worked up a bucket load of confidence. She arrived. I had her pizza there. I cut it into eight perfect slices. I picked up the pizza, and I looked at her, and I presented it to her. Here's your pizza. Only I shouldn't have looked at her. I should have looked at the pizza, because if I looked at the pizza, I would have seen the lip of the edge of the counter and the pizza, and I would not have caught it, flipping the pizza upside down, putting those perfectly eight-cut slices face down on the countertop. I looked at her again. She was not impressed. I slumped back into the kitchen, and the owner of the pizzeria came up, and he took over and reissued her another order. And while that pizza was getting ready, I came up to him a little bit later, and I said, hey, would it be possible that if when her next pizza comes out that I could present it to her? And, and he turned to me, and he goes, so you want a chance to redeem yourself, huh? And it was the first time I remember hearing that statement. But I was like, yes, yes, I would like to redeem myself. And he was, okay, that sounds good, you know. And he understood, and it was great, and it was wonderful. So I'm back in the kitchen, and I'm putting ingredients on the, on the pizzas. And I remember exactly where I was standing, where I could see through those shelves and through the opening from the kitchen to the front. And I could see things going on there. And, and I saw her come up to get her pizza. And I'm trying to finish up with the ingredients caught so I could step out. She's talking with the man, with the owner, and there's a conversation going on. I can't hear it, but it looks like it's going well. My redemption is nigh. I'm like, come on, boss, call me over. You know, I'm getting ready. I look down, and I'm trying to get this linguisa off my fingers. And I get it off, and I look up, and I see him hand her the pizza, and she takes it, and she walks away. And my chance for redemption. At one time or another, we always feel this, we feel this need to redeem ourselves. We've done something wrong. We've fallen short. We've hurt someone. We have a need to fix it. It's part of our human condition. I think of you see a couple of boys playing on the, on the playground, and they're either one's teasing the other or they're pushes one or hurts him, and, and the kid gets hurt, and he's crying, and he's feeling sad, and his friend's telling him, don't feel bad. Here, here, hit me. Hit me. You ever seen that? Remember that? It's not like he wants, he, he sees what he's done. He feels terrible, and, and he's like, you know, I, I understand. I've hurt you. Please don't feel bad. Give me your pain. We want to redeem ourselves. It's, it's a common thread in, in arts, in literature, in the movies. Uh, you take the character Spider-Man. You know the story. Peter Parker, he's a science whiz kid. He gets bit by a radioactive spider, and he takes on spider powers. Wouldn't that be cool? But the super strength, his speed, his ability to climb walls, and all of that, why does he do good? Well, the storyline goes, he's... He, he, becomes a sort of like a mock television novelty star doing his special things. And, and one day he has the opportunity to stop a thief who runs past him. 
But he, he just uh, blithely ignores him and lets him go. But it catches up to him because later on that very thief kills his uncle, who was his guardian, in a, in a robbery attempt. And so Peter Parker swears never to let anyone innocent get hurt under his watch from that. It was a redemptive moment for him as he's trying to fight crime. Born out of his moral failure, he's trying to redeem himself. Another famous story of redemption comes from Les Miserables, where the main character, a peasant named Jean Valjean, is released from prison. 19 years in prison for stealing bread to feed his sister's family. But when he is released, he's got a yellow mark on his passport, and no, everyone sees that he was a former convict, so no one takes him in. He sleeps on the street, angry and bitter. But the bishop in the town is a benevolent man and gives him shelter. But the embittered Valjean takes off in the night, stealing the bishop's silverware. He is caught by the police. He knows he'd be going back to prison for good. The police bring him to the bishop to press charges. But in a twist, the bishop tells the police, thank you for bringing him back. He forgot to take these silver candlesticks with him along with the silverware. Pretending that he gave them to Valjean, the police accept the story and leave. And Valjean is stunned. The bishop tells him that his life has been spared for God so that he should use the money from the silver candlesticks to make an honest man of himself. And that's what happens. And it's a really thick book, and there's a lot more after that. But that's Valjean's redemptive moment. In one case, we have the hero whose virtue stems from him trying to redeem himself for his moral failure. And for another one, we have a virtue that is born out of redemption that he has received. But not just in fiction. We have it in history, too. When we look at Peter, he's the bold, passionate disciple. He's part of Jesus' inner circle. He was the first disciple Jesus called. He was the first who confessed Jesus as the Messiah. And he was the one who most boldly vows never to deny the Lord. And at the Last Supper, when, when Jesus says his disciples will flee from him, Peter declares, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same, Matthew 26, 35. Yet we know what happens. Upon Jesus' arrest, Peter follows from a distance. And it's not long before a servant girl identifies him as one of his followers. When she makes this declaration, Peter, of course, denies it, just as Jesus predicted. He has two more opportunities in the night to redeem himself in that, but instead... He denies two more times. In fact, each denial is stronger than the previous. And by the third one, he is cutting loose with curses and swears that he does not know the Lord. And then he hears the rooster crow. And then he remembers Jesus' words. He will deny him three times. Peter leaves and weeps bitterly. Put yourself in his mindset. I will never leave you. I am your faithful one. I'm the one who is right with you, and I'm close with you, Jesus. I'll never let you go. And he cowers. His cowardice overcomes him. His actions are a betraying, a betraying affront to Jesus. He's seeing his own duplicity in himself. 
And if it wasn't for the resurrection happening in a couple of days, I'm sure that would have haunted him for a lifetime. But after the resurrection, we know Jesus addresses Peter. They're on the shore. He sees the resurrected Jesus, and he restores him back to mission. Asking Peter three times, do you love me? Peter says, yes, feed my sheep. Jesus is passing the torch to Peter. You are going to shepherd my people. And Peter became bold after that. We see early on in the book of Acts in chapters 3 and 4, he and John heal a blind, a blind um, excuse me, a lame beggar. And it attracts the crowd. And Peter boldly addresses the crowd. And he's telling them, not a pep talk. He's giving them a conviction story. He's telling them about their wrongs and their sins and how they put them on the cross. It's the, kind of, it's the kind of sermon you never want to give. But he's bold about it. And people are responding. And that scares the authorities. So they arrest him. And he has to stand before the, the authorities, the big people, the rulers and the elders, the community. And he stands for God. No denials. A complete turnaround from what he did in front of that little servant girl just a few days or weeks earlier. This is the evidence of someone living out their redemption. We're in our series today about a God-saturated life. Uh, We're looking at several important concepts from the Bible. A few weeks ago, we began with rebuild and restore, how Jesus rebuilds and restores our lives. And then we had rename about God's purposes in our lives. And last week, we looked at reveal about God's presence in our life. And this week, we're looking at redeemed, what it means to be redeemed. If you looked up the word in the dictionary, you would come with something like to recover ownership of by paying a specific sum, like when you go to a pawn shop to redeem maybe some jewelry you hawked. Another meaning is to set free, like from slavery or kidnapping. That's the idea of paying a ransom. And another one, to atone for an error or a mistake, like when you drop a customer's pizza. These capture very well the biblical meaning of it, but there's also another meaning from the biblical term to redeem that I want to make clear. And that word, of course, it means to buy out or to purchase out of something. And in the New Testament, the redemption requires a payment. It's a moral payment. It's not a monetary payment. And that moral payment is the death of Jesus Christ. But the idea running through all the passages that refer to Jesus as our atonement, as our redemption, the debt against us is not viewed as simply canceled, but as fully paid. Not just canceled, but fully paid. Um, Note that distinction. Our debt for our sin is fully paid. It's not just God saying, okay, I won't hold it against you, even though you did do it wrong. It's, It's paid for uh, a guy named James Harriet, he's a, he was a young veterinarian just starting out, and his wedding anniversary was coming up, his, or an early wedding anniversary, and his boss encouraged him, take her to this fancy restaurant. She'll love it, do it. But he didn't have a lot of money, and he didn't think they could afford it, but his boss pressed him more, and he decided kind of reluctantly to take her out. So they decide, he surprises her, and they, they head to the restaurant, but he's a veterinarian, and he has to do a house call, maybe a barn call, maybe what call but he has to stop by and check out this guy's horse on a farm. So he goes to, and they stop, and he checks out the horse. It's a routine checkup. And, sorry, I'm picturing a big, like, 
cuff on a horse and you're pumping it and you're holding a stethoscope to it. It's a weird picture. What do you do for a routine checkup on a horse? Anyway, he does the checkup and they leave and they head to the restaurant. But unbeknownst to him, he dropped his checkbook there and left there. So they get, to the, they get to the restaurant, they have a wonderful meal, and then he reaches for his checkbook and he discovers it's gone. He's embarrassed. He doesn't know what to do. He's trying to find a way to make it up. And the waiter replies to him, he goes, don't worry about it. Your dinner has been taken care of. You see, his boss had paid for his dinner ahead of time as a gift. And I think it's a beautiful picture of what God has done for us. Because there's those times we come in our life when we realize I can't redeem myself. I'm bankrupt. I dropped my checkbook in the mud, and I, I can't do anything with this. And then you discover that God has already paid for it in full through his son. Now, there's the big redemption. Jesus forgives us our sins, and that's what he did on the cross in his resurrection. And that's wonderful. But, you know, if you've been in church for a while, you can kind of take that for granted. You kind of go, yeah, I'm saved. Jesus paid for my sins. That's cool. Wonderful. But it's hugely important, and it's easy to take advantage of or take for granted. But I think our struggle more is in the day-to-day redemption. How do we do it when we um, drop the pizza? What do we do? And the thing to remember is that we are redeemed, but Jesus redeems us every day. And we run into these situations, but there's a point that God calls us to live out our redemption. And we're to live it out like Jean Valjean, not like Spider-Man. We're not trying to earn our redemption we're living out from the grace and the redemption we've received. And I got some principles, some, some application points here um, that you can look at. And the first one here is, is realize to whom you are redeemed. And living out a redemption, first realize to whom you are redeemed. Um, in Galatians 4, the passage I opened up with, Paul's explaining our relationship to the law and faith. And he uses an analogy of the laws being like a, a caretaker, a trustee, watching over the estate for uh, an underaged heir. And the heir's too young to manage everything, so this trustee takes care of it. And then at the appointed time of the father, he receives his inheritance. But the trustee, the law, is not the source of the inheritance. The trustee as law does not make the heir the one to be inheriting. It's just the trustee. It's the father who, before it all started, had already willed the redemption of the inheritance. But when the set time had fully come, God said to his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might redeem adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, his daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Realize to whom you are redeemed. I love that word, Abba. It's not where we call him Lord or Mr. or Sir or Mr. Jesus. It's Father. Abba, Father. That's that affectionate term. Um, That means there's an intimacy there. And then uh, Jesus is paid for that. So we try not to define ourselves by who we are, but by whose we are. And that's a different dynamic, trying to prove myself to God versus I'm fully accepted by God because of Jesus, and now I'm trying to live out my redemption for him. Paid in full. Secondly, 
We want to respond to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. One of the benefits of being redeemed is the Holy Spirit comes and abides with us to strengthen us, to guide us on our paths. This guidance comes most clearly through the Spirit-inspired pages of his word. As we read scripture, we see God through the Holy Spirit and his will for our lives. The Holy Spirit also illumines us as to how to live out biblical truths in our lives in our day-to-day situations. You know, um, there's not something in the scripture that says, you know, what do you do when the 7-Eleven clerk gives you too much change back? Um, But there are principles in there, and the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom on how to deal with those things. And, of course, the answer is you take it down and you give it uh, as a gift for your children's pastor. (laughs) Don't do that. That went out. Did that go out? Sorry. I'm kidding. Okay. Respond to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Don't say no. Don't, Don't quench the Spirit. But incline your hearts and your prayers and your time to... Be willing to do God's will. Be faithful to him where he leads us. Respond to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, remember that God has a plan for you, and you are not the manager of the universe. You are not the general manager of the universe. We look at Peter and his denials, and he failed, and it was emotionally brutal for him. But Jesus knew all along this would happen. When he rose... Hear the words when the, the angels were talking to the women who went to the tomb in Mark 16, 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It's a beautiful indicator of God's sensitivity and concern. The special highlighting there of Peter. Jesus knew what was going on and he knew Peter would need an opportunity for redemption. So make sure you tell him. Everyone else, let him know, but make sure you tell Peter. Now, we do do mistakes that sometimes our, our chance for redemption walks away. We don't get that chance. But we need to remember God is our redeemer. Our failures are not a surprise to him. Plus, the Lord has a plan, and his plans go beyond what we may be trying to accomplish or what we're trying to fix. And sometimes we have to accept that we can't control everything. We are not the general managers of the universe. Life is bigger than us, but not bigger than God. If in some way you have sinned, confess it, repent, and continue to walk with the Lord. God responds to faithfulness, not flawlessness. God responds to faithfulness, not flawlessness, which goes to the next point, recognize that we are all products of the fall and in need of redemption. Error is normative. Even in the case of Peter, we see Peter's restored. He comes to this point of leadership. And then you go to chapter 2 of Galatians, and Paul has to rebuke Peter. Peter comes in, and he's, he's working with the church at, at, at Antioch. And, and this circumcision group comes in, and again, Peter gets afraid of them, and he starts kind of kowtowing to them and being a bad example for the rest of understanding what God's grace truly is. And Paul had to confront him face to face on this. He learned his lesson, but even along the way, if Peter needs grace, shouldn't we give ourselves grace? Jacob was a cheater. Moses committed murder. Gideon was insecure. Jonah ran from God. 
Elijah suffered depression. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. Peter was impulsive and sometimes cowardly. But God chose these people and used them. We are all products of the fall and in need of redemption. Fifth, recall that the sufferings of this world are temporary. We sometimes feel pain and injury. Friends betray us or hurt us. Sometimes we do that ourselves. But part of the redemption promise is that our pain and hurt is not final. We have hope because God has promised to redeem all of creation. I, I had a really interesting experience. I went to one of my uncle's funerals, and there I was talking to his older brother. And we got on the topic of death and Jesus and God and belief, and, and he, he couldn't believe. And his response was, well, kind of, well, how could God be this way? And he was referring to his brother who had Parkinson's disease for a few decades. By the way, that brother was my father. And uh, that was sort of his, you know, terrible thing. And later on driving home, I was sharing that, uh, that little exchange with my mother. And my mother's response was completely different. She's like, oh, it was wonderful because he's now at a better place. And she had this perspective that was very different where the man she was married to had suffered all these years and she had this hope. It made a complete difference in her attitude that I could see the way she cared for him because she realized that the sufferings of this world are temporary, that there's something more awaiting for us. And finally, reciprocate God's grace in your life by offering grace to others. Sometimes we expect others to be perfect and to treat us as we expect to be treated. But uh, as we said earlier, we are all in need of redemption. We are all victims of the fall. We're all affected and afflicted, but when we view people through this lens of being fallen, instead of expecting them to be perfect, we can be more sympathetic. And instead of maybe bearing a grudge, we'd recognize maybe their need to point to a redeemer or maybe our need to pray for them, to offer that grace. And in another aspect, there are people out there who need a redeemer, and they're looking for the redeemer. They may not be aware of it, but they may not know where that is. And, and we are the salt and light to bring that connection to them. So in the way if we show our love to God and live out a redemption, showing his love to others and his message of grace to others, we need to do that as well. Let us pray. Thank you. Oh, our Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. May we live heartily, wholeheartedly into our redemption. Amen.